Hello and welcome to the Do One Better podcast in philanthropy, sustainability and social entrepreneurship. I'm your host, Alberto Aligi from London. Please click that subscribe button and follow us if you're not doing so already. And do leave us a rating and a review. It helps others to find the show as well. Today, it's an absolute pleasure to welcome onto the show Caroline Fines, Director at Giving Evidence. We're going to be looking at the academic research behind how to give. So not necessarily what to give to, but how to give. Do you give small grants? Do you give big grants? Do you give in hybrid models? That's the topic for today. Caroline is a uh, visiting fellow at Judge Business School at the University of Cambridge, based at the Center for Strategic Philanthropy. And I am also a visiting fellow there. So uh, for full disclosure, uh, she's someone who I've known from before. And uh, without further ado, Caroline, a big heartfelt welcome onto the Do One Better podcast today. Thank you. Nice to talk with you. Likewise, likewise. Good to see you again. And uh, you're in the UK. I'm in the UK. No time difference to overcome today. We're both involved with the uh, Cambridge uh, University Center for uh, Strategic Philanthropy. So we have a few dots in common. And, uh, and you're the director of Giving Evidence. And I'd love to start by finding out a little bit about Giving Evidence. What's it all about? Giving Evidence exists to encourage and enable donors to uh, give based on sound evidence and thereby to improve their effectiveness. And that means evidence about where problems are, why they are, who is doing what about them, what is effective in resolving them, and how the intended beneficiaries feel about them. So we look at all of that. And another way of cutting it is that we um, think about what donors fund and also how they fund. So in general, in philanthropy, there's lots of discussion and energy around what to fund, but there's much less around how to fund, which we think is also enormously important and possibly at least as important as what donors fund. Absolutely, absolutely. I mean, that is one of the things we hear a lot about evidence-based philanthropy and like you said, you know, what to fund and different uh, interventions and different randomized control trials and all of these things. But when it comes down to the um, the underpinnings of philanthropy itself, irrespective of what you're funding, but how you're funding it and the, the methodology for that, arguably, and I think you agree with this, the, uh, the evidence is lacking or it's not as robust as, as it should be. Yeah, and that really matters. So in our work at Giving Evidence, we advise donors on what to do. And we also do research. We use a lot of research and we produce a lot of research. And obviously, we produce research on topics that we think are both important and where there are gaps in the evidence. And it really matters, we think, that there are these gaps on in the research around how to fund because in many instances we just don't know we just don't know so there's loads of questions on which every donor or foundation or funder takes a position they may not even realize consciously that they're doing it but they so for instance suppose that you have a hundred million pounds do you make one big grant a few pretty large grants or a zillion small grants you know, every funder makes takes a position on this question of how finely to chop up their pot of money, but they might not realize that they're doing it. 
Um, but actually, the human race doesn't really know what is the best position to take in particular circumstances. And the thing, the thing I find really striking in the world of philanthropy is that like every person and their dog has an opinion <laughs> on these questions. But actually, nobody's really got any. For most of the questions, there's very little or no proper evidence. So another example of such a question is, should you give grants or loans or quasi-equity investments, for example? And there are many people who are advocates for one type of funding or another. But there's not actually a proper evidence base with comparison groups about which type of funding gets you better outcomes in which circumstances. There are tiny sort of pockets of insight, but basically we don't really know. Um, and it seems to me that it's a useful place that we could start to apply the empirical method. These are empirical questions. They're not philosophical questions about, you know, what gets you the best outcomes in what circumstances. They're questions that we could investigate empirically. So, for instance, suppose that you are trying to fund back-to-work programs. You know, you can imagine an experiment in which you fund some back-to-work programs with small grants and some back-to-work programs with large grants and then you could just look at which of those gets you the greatest outcomes per pound spent right we can investigate these questions empirically people quite often say oh well it depends and the, and of course it depends i mean that's like saying you know what's the best medical treatment well, it depends what's wrong with you, right? You know, if you have a brain tumor, then the best treatment is different than if you've broken your leg. <laughs> yeah. But, but so, so fine, it depends. Of course it depends. But let's figure out what does the decision tree look like? You know, what is best in what circumstance? We've been applying the empirical method to medical questions now for, depending on how you count it, about 100 years or possibly 500 years. Um, and that has brought us enormous gains in health outcomes that we know what the best approaches are in particular circumstances and what giving evidence calls for and tries to contribute to is an evidence base that is the application of that empirical method to these questions about how best to fund. Yeah. What's your experience tell you thus far? And obviously, barring any huge... Um, rigorous academic study, but anecdotally speaking, and also in terms of your, uh, I guess, your preferences, how are you approaching this? How do you see it? What does it tell you in regards to that earlier question? You know, do you give a lot of small grants? Do you give a big one? Um, where do you stand on things? Well, so I try not to take a position on things when there isn't proper evidence. I don't think that's that's terribly helpful. Um, I mean, it seems that many donors and the ones, you know, sometimes when we're advising donors, even in the absence of evidence, donors have to do something, right? Just as, you know, 50 years ago, before there were randomized trials, the doctors had to do something. <laughs> and they still do, you know, like friends of ours have long COVID, for example, long COVID is not understood, the medics have to do something. Um, so you have to, as a kind of practitioner, make a best shot based on the limited evidence that you've got. We always tend towards large grants, 
and unrestricted grants. And the reason for those is basically that the transaction cost is lowest. So it's pretty obvious that some grants have really high transaction costs. They're very expensive to apply for. There's masses of reporting and evaluation and masses of kind of dancing in front of a donor. I used to run a charity and um, there was an instance when we applied to a family foundation it took ages. I was dealing with it because I had a relationship with them and they wanted to deal with the boss. And eventually they said, congratulations, we're giving you a grant. And it was for, I think, £5,000. You know, our turnover was about a million quid at the time. And then we had to fill in loads of forms and go to loads of meetings and go to loads of, you know, convenings of their grantees and whatever. And again, I did some of that and others did some I'm a physicist by background, so it's very natural to me to look at the numbers. And um, so I added up in my physicisty way how much all of this had cost us. And the at, at the end, and the answer was about four and a half thousand pounds. And so when they said, "What did you do with our grant?" it was like, "Well, sweetie, you spent it. <laughs> we spent it dealing with you." And it doesn't—you don't have to be a genius to realize that. In that instance, our net grant, it's called, is only 10% of what they gave us, right? 90% got essentially wasted in the transaction. Um, it doesn't really matter what you're funding or how, how great your strategy is as a donor if you are kind of wasting, quote unquote, 90% of the grant or 100% or sometimes it's more than 100% of the grant. So if you can reduce the transaction costs, that is at a minimum something that is really useful. And a question regarding uh, third parties, let's say. So if you're a philanthropist, well, many people have the instinct to set up their own foundation. But a lot of times you have the ability to uh, piggyback on the work that somebody else is doing and, and, and joining up with them, either funding them or, or in some other ways. Um, any views on that? Any experience on that in terms of what uh, all things being equal, if there is a preferred way forward? Yeah, so we would tend to advise donors to do that if there is a donor or a foundation operate who's doing pretty much what they want to do. Again, just from an efficiency basis, but then you don't have to replicate all the structures and so on and the processes. Um, that strategy of going where somebody else is does preclude you from doing things that nobody else is already doing, right? So it, it precludes you from going and doing really unusual work. And sometimes it's right for donors to go and do unusual things because they found a gap that nobody else is in and it's important. And so in, in which case they have to go alone. But so, so efficiency arguments will get you um, some distance. We also, to come back to your question about, you know, what else has giving evidence found? I mean, we have found that some of these questions can be investigated empirically. So I'll give you an example. We did, we were in a conversation with the Inter-American Foundation, which is an agency of the US federal government. They are, from memory, about 50 years old, maybe more. And they make smallish grants to grassroots organizations across Latin America. And you will be aware of the grantee perception reports that are produced by the Center for Effective Philanthropy in the US. And 
the Centre for Active Philanthropy has done grantee perception reports in which they ask funders, grantees, a whole pile of questions about that funder. And CEP has produced those reports for some hundreds of foundations now. And the Inter-American Foundation has done that twice. And they both times have come out top of the chart, the all-time chart, in terms of how useful the grantees find the funders' reporting process. Well, I was pretty interested in this because, as you know, loads of funders make their grantees do reporting. And loads of grantees perceive those processes as quite a pain in the ass. And often they are kind of compliant and they can be quite laborious and they are sort of a deadweight transaction cost. Often, not always, but often. So I was really interested in, well, what is IAF doing, which its grantees are finding so helpful? And so we did a study with IAF of exactly that question. Now, clearly there's something in to my sort of overall question about how to fund, what is the best way of funding. Here seems to be a really positive example. So let's go find out what IAF is doing <laughs> that others are finding so helpful and see whether other funders could do something similar. And the answer actually is that the IAF's grantees experience the reporting process as a capacity building process. They experience it as kind of training basically in how to gather data and how to interpret data. And of course the grantee many of their grantees find it super helpful the ones who are already very sophisticated find it less helpful because they're already further up the curve so that's an example of where we did some empirical analysis which helps to shed insight into a way that a funder can fund how to fund usefully in certain circumstances another example that we did was an analysis for a found grant-making foundation based in Hong Kong, completely different setup. And they were 10 years old. They wanted to do something, a retrospective thing for their 10th birthday. And we sat down with them and went through all of their historical grants and basically marked them as to how well those grants had gone. Did they go very well or all right or basically not very well, <laughs> sort of red, amber, green. And then we looked at characteristics of all of their grants. So how big were they? What countries were they in? What sectors were they in? What was the leadership like? How big was the grant as a proportion of the organization's budget and so on? So we put out loads of criteria and then we basically did a big regression analysis to try to figure out which factors or which characteristics of grants tend to make for success. And almost any funder could do that analysis in a retrospective way and work out what tends to make for success in the particular sectors and geographies where they are working. And then, you know, the Dutch have this nice phrase about comply or explain. You know, suppose that your child protection grants in Thailand always go wrong if the historically have always gone wrong if the organization is led by a man, but they've gone fine if they're led by a woman. Okay, I'm making this up as an example. 
but suppose that's the case. That doesn't ban you from making grants to those organisations led by men. But it does mean that if you are doing that, if you're going to make a grant of the type which has previously not worked out very well, then you better have a good reason for doing it and you better keep an eye on it <laughs> much more than you might do otherwise. So it helps also to manage the portfolio if you have that kind of analysis. Question for you, why do you think there is a, a scarcity of, of really good research in this particular area because there seems to be a big move within philanthropy these days to back, not just back evidence-based uh, interventions, but also if the evidence is lacking to fund the actual evidence-building exercise, as it were. Um, so I think within the philanthropy space, there is appetite to fund the development of a body of knowledge uh, behind a question, big question, that, that could be really useful but maybe hasn't really been answered. What's what's holding things back right now? Well, yeah, and that's the... What's I mean, holding things back? And what you say in your question is a massive cause for celebration, actually, that people are interested in funding evidence-based work and in building the evidence. And that was not the case 20 years ago, you know, when I started in this field. So that is a testament to all the people who have been banging this drum um, for all that time. Um, I would think there's possibly two answers to your question about why have we not started applying the empirical method more to the business of philanthropy itself. One is that it's just the new frontier. You know, basically everybody's been busy doing something else and people have not yet noticed or are only starting to notice that this question exists. And that's fine. That's the purpose of advocacy like we're doing right now, to raise people's awareness that this question exists. So that may be one answer. The other, which can be happening at the same time, is I think sometimes funders are reluctant to examine themselves and their own practices. It is much easier to scrutinise someone else than it is to scrutinise yourself. Well, it's, it's much more palatable <laughs> to do that. Because, like, what are you going to do if it turns out that you've been doing it wrong for the last 10, 20, 100 years? That's a pretty horrible message to swallow. <laughs> it's quite dangerous, basically, from a sort of governance perspective to open up these questions. But that's always the case. It's always the case as the empirical frontiers move forward that we might discover that we've been doing something wrong. I mean, that's entirely what happened in medicine. And, you know, better to find out sooner rather than later. Now, what we're speaking about today, do you find that this sort of area of exploration resonates with the philanthropists with whom you are engaging with day in and day out? I think it's a new thought. I think it's relatively new, the notion of scrutinizing yourself as a foundation so for instance the welcome trust well now called welcome which is europe's largest grant making foundation i think put out a statement earlier this year that it believes itself to be institutionally racist and it did that it said that because it made some commitments to anti-racism two or three years ago and it this year had an audit of how well was it doing on those and uh, from memory, the audit found it was not doing great. And there was some evidence of, you know, systematic problems within the organization and microaggressions and so on. 
and it put out that statement. And that's a very bold statement to put out. And I think, um, in a way, credit to Welcome for doing that. But also, it's unusual for a foundation to scrutinize itself in that way. It doesn't have to. Foundations and funders don't have to. Most foundations and funders and donors, as you know, have their resources. They are almost unique in the economy in that they don't have to compete for their resources. Fundraising foundations, community foundations, corporate foundations are a little different, but most of them have their resources. They don't have to compete. And so if you look at the history of humanity, most scrutiny has come from somewhere else. You know, we are in England. This is the country of Magna Carta. King John didn't hand, didn't give up power willingly. He was kind of forced into it by the angry barons. Um, and so people, so it's it's quite new and it's threatening for donors and they're not kind of forced into to doing it. I mean, part of what we do is talk about it a lot. And sometimes donors and foundations are interested in these questions. So like I say, the Foundation in Hong Kong, the Inter-American Foundation, we just did some work on looking at how can foundations reduce the transaction costs of their application processes. That was funded philanthropically. So, you know, over time, there comes to be more interest in these questions and more awareness of them. The British Academy, for example, is starting to make some of its grants at random. It's selecting grantees at random from those who apply. That approach has been used in medical funding, in medical research funding in Australia, and it's been used for admitting medical students in New Zealand and random allocation has been used quite successfully in quite a number of instances it's relatively new into philanthropy and so you know people are starting to ask these questions about would it be better if rather than having loads of expert panels or staff or whoever screen these proposals we just screen out the ones that are hopeless and then of the rest it doesn't really matter the rank order of them we're just going to choose at random and hopefully that will save us all a load of time and money and it will get rid of a load of biases at the same time and you could test that you could test that you could test i hope the that's not the case i mean stock picking whether you're picking stocks or shares do you need an analyst or can you just throw a dart blindfolded at the ft and say okay where did that land what company did that uh, dart land on well yeah and when you say so we, it's true that we don't have much evidence about some of these processes from within philanthropy but if you think about it, a lot of foundations are fundamentally machines for making yes no decisions the most important thing they do is to decide shall we fund this thing or not and although we don't have so so decision making is central to the success of philanthropy and although we don't have much analysis of decision making within philanthropy the human race has a lot of experience about decision making in human behavior in general, you know, all that Daniel Kahneman work, all the decision theorists work is very applicable. And so I made it my business to get to know those people um, and to get to know their body of work. I mean, the basic conclusion of which is that groups of humans are quite a rubbish mechanism for making decisions. And yet, if you look at how most foundations operate, their decisions are made by groups of humans. Now, I would wager, I could be wrong, 
I've been proven wrong before. I would wager that oftentimes within these big foundations, you know, the, the ones you and I know with hundreds and hundreds of, of, of millions in an endowment here and there, that they probably done quite a, uh, many of them have done a lot of research and maybe they're holding on to it. Maybe they know what works for them. They've, they've looked at it. They've spent a lot of time. Some might. But I would think that that's the case. And I would think that there is probably more evidence on this than we might think. Well. Because it's not published in a, in a, in a peer-reviewed journal. Or, or perhaps anywhere at all. I mean, Or, or anywhere at all, exactly. But I mean, if there's evidence and it's only, you know, in hard copy in somebody's cupboard and none of the rest of us can get access to it, that's basically the same as there being no evidence. Right. Because from an operational perspective, you know, I cannot use that. No, no philanthropy advisor can use that because they don't know it exists. So it might as well not exist. Okay. I have once or twice come across foundations who have said what you just said, that they've alluded to some research that they haven't published. And you can guess what I say next, which is, well, would you like to publish that? <laughs> like, we'd be very helpful, you know, happy to help you publish that. You know, we would do that for free to help get it out into the discourse. So, for example, I spoke once to a large foundation which funds scientific research. And the they looked at the success of all their research projects that they fund. Um, and in their process, applications get scored by staff and then they also get scored by the expert panels okay now the thing about scientific research is that you can look at the bibliometrics as they're called in terms of how successful that research is which means how often it gets cited and by other researchers and in what kind of journals and everybody hates bibliometrics because they're a very flawed mechanism but they are at least the same across the board it's not like trying to compare you know species conservation with preserving old buildings with running domestic violence refuges. At least you've got a currency that is the same across all of it. So they looked at all the research they'd funded. They could see how the outcome variable, the, the dependent variable, as economists would call it, they can look at how successful this work is. And they can correlate that with the scores that the staff give versus the scores that the experts give, which are meant to be basically predictions as to how well this work is going to do. And it turns out that the predictions made by staff are better, much better, than the predictions made by the expert panels. So what does that tell you? Well, you should just get rid of the expert panels, right? The expert panels are just noise in your machine. For reasons that I don't know, that foundation hasn't done that. But to your point about people having research that they haven't published, this foundation knows that. At least in the way that it funds and in its sector, it is the case that the expert panels basically get in, in the way. And many of these foundations are quasi-academic institutions as far as I'm concerned. I mean, if you look at the people who are working in some of these foundations, there's PhD here, PhD there, Princeton, Oxford, you name it. Very solid academic footing, a lot of the foundations. Foundations vary hugely, but many have um, enough research caliber in their staff that they could publish research that they have done like this it doesn't necessarily need to go into peer-reviewed journals but they could if they wanted to they could certainly get it out and into the public domain i mean and in general i think that this this kind of scrutiny both of funders and also of interventions which is where you alluded to at the beginning in general should not be done by the organization that is being analyzed 
in general, you want it done by a third party for obvious reasons of avoiding bias. There must be appetite within the philanthropic community to support this sort of research, this this exercise in looking at what sort of giving mechanisms and strategies are optimal. It's um, It benefits everyone, ultimately. It's a public good. It's absolutely a public good. And um, we are in discussion with some funders. I mean, a great next step would be to do a systematic review, to pull together all of the published information on these topics and to see what does it say? What do we know? What do we not know? And therefore, what are the priority questions that we need to answer? So I have come across bits of research, sometimes from other sectors, which pertain to these questions. So in the field of behavioral economics, for example, there was a program which gave out grants of various different sizes. And somebody told me once, somebody who would know, told me once that they had not found that there was any difference in impact between the big grants versus the small grants. Now, someone who would know telling me that is rather different from a proper paper where I can actually see the table of what these grants were and what the outcomes were. Um, but I've heard that I also have read in a proper peer-reviewed journal something similar, actually, about grants into medical research for a particular medical condition. We must always be careful with research that we don't apply it in circumstances where it isn't applicable, right? So the research that says, oh yes, a good idea is to drill into the person's head and take out part of their brain is only relevant if the person's got a brain tumor. It's no good if they've got breast cancer or if they've got a mental health condition or something. So we need to make very sure that we apply it only in relevant circumstances. And this is a big topic in the use of studies about interventions, for example. So for instance, the research about education in India shows that more inputs, like more teachers, more desks, more books, often doesn't translate into learning gains. Whereas my understanding is that in Vietnam, for example, it does translate into learning gains because it's a completely different way of teaching and a completely different philosophy, not least because they have a communist um, history. So we need to be very careful in just kind of transmuting things from one to another, which is why I say that when we look at what works in funding practice, what are the best ways of giving, it will very probably depend on the particular circumstance in which you are trying to solve. But again, but we can figure out what the decision tree is. And it's not good enough to just say it depends. That's to say we've got no idea. We're not going to try to find yeah, out. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Give us a key takeaway to conclude. What's that one thing you'd love for the audience to keep in mind? after they finish listening to today's Oh, show. there is a big set of questions around how donors should fund. As I say, we've always been looking at what they fund, but there's a big set of questions about how to fund, and those questions need answering, and many of them can be answered empirically. You know, this is not the 1600s. Like, we have the scientific tools to do this now, and so let us go to work and answer them and find out, and thereby we can use the answers to make giving more... Excellent. I love it. Caroline, great seeing you again. Thanks for joining me and joining us on the Do One Better podcast today. Great having you on the show. And uh, onwards we go. Thank, Thank you. you very much. Lovely to talk with you, as ever. 
Perfect. And that's a wrap. Thanks very much for tuning in. As always, you've been listening to a great chat with Caroline Fines, director at Giving Evidence. For information about this conversation and 200 other interviews and case studies with remarkable folks in philanthropy, sustainability, and social entrepreneurship, just visit our website at Ligi.org. That's L-I-D-J-I.org. Please click the subscribe button and follow us if you haven't done so already. And do leave us a rating and a review. It helps others to find the show as well. Thoroughly enjoyed producing today's show for you, and I'll catch you on Monday.